Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. I hadn't done anything. I hadn't created or made anything with my hands. I hadn't painted, drawn. I hadn't even thought in a creative way. It was just dead inside. It was a prison that was made over multiple years of just conditioning, going down this track, doing what others wanted for me. Hi, everyone. I'm Amy Devers, and this is Clever. Today, I'm talking to Maho Mulfino. Maho is a writer, speaker, and women's creative leadership coach who combines storytelling, design, psychology, and mindfulness to help women build their creative confidence and power. She holds a master's in learning design and technology from Stanford University. Born in Buenos Aires, Argentina, Maho lived in over 10 different cities throughout Canada and the U.S. before making her home in San Francisco. As an immigrant, she thinks of identity as fluid and unpacks the tension of both feeling free to pursue her passions while being under pressure to bend to good girl perfectionism, a limiting framework she dismantles in her book, Break the Good Girl Myth. You may know her from Heroin, her podcast featuring conversations with leading female creatives. Here's Maho. I'm Maho Molfino. I work in Corte Madera, California, and I am an author and designer. I support women in building their creative confidence because I believe we need more women's perspectives in the world. Hallelujah. 
Hear, hear, amen, high five, thumbs up, and cheers. All the things. (laughs) Yes. Before we get into all of that work, I love to start from zero because I like to know how you got to be the Maho that you are today. So can we go all the way back to your youth and adolescence? And can you tell me some of the stories from your formative years that would help us to understand your background and your lived experience? It's funny, on on my podcast, Heroin, I, I ask every guest, what were you like as a little girl? It kind of throws them back into that. And so I, I feel like this question is getting at that. I was a girl with a lot of leadership. <laughs> and so I was going to say bossy, and then I caught myself. There you go. <laughs> and I was someone who, you know, when we were playing as kids, I was always directing play and I knew what I wanted and I was very vocal about what I wanted. And growing up in the nineties, or (laughs) I'll give you a sense for my age. I think that, you know, it was a different time then than it is now. But one of the things was that I don't know that that was so well received necessarily from people around me. I think that I, I received messages that I was too much or too strong in some ways from particularly outside of my family. I think in my family, it was it was good, but in school and with teachers and other kids. And so I navigated that and I was always the new kid. I'm an immigrant and I moved around quite a bit. So can you tell me what some of that messaging was like? Was it just sort of calling you precocious and, yes. and laughing off, you know, a lot of that and just like, oh, Maho, she's trying to run the show, that kind of thing, like sort of dismissive or... Yes, I was definitely called precocious, though not that word because we're kids. I was just seen as sort of trying to run the show is a good way of putting it. And I think I had a relationship to adults because I I was that sort of typical good girl. Adults, in some ways, some adults loved me, you know, parents and teachers, because I would almost get, I would get along with them better than kids, you know? And so really it was my peers, I think, that didn't really feel at ease with the way that I was. You sensed a little bit of a division as though you were maybe a narc or a teacher's pet, mm-hmm, like that kind definitely. of a mm-hmm. um, tattletale, maybe not, not that you were a tattletale, but because you were in with the adults, there was a sort of lack of camaraderie. Yeah. And lack of belonging. Definitely being also being the new kid every two to three years, new school. Yeah, that can do a number on somebody. How did you navigate that? And how did it seep into your psyche? And and how are you working with it today? I think being introverted as well, I think it had a bit of an impact on on me. I wouldn't even say a bit. It definitely, if I were being completely honest with you, it definitely shaped who I am moving around so much. And I think one of the ways that I coped with feeling like the new kid and the anxiety of that was I have to really excel at school, get straight A's and win the spelling bee, be good at classical piano, be a great dancer, uh, just sort of impress as much as possible. In some ways, I felt like that would give me more belonging. But the irony was that (laughs) in some ways that just annoyed my peers even more, I'm sure. But yeah, I think one of the ways that I dealt with the trauma of immigration and the feelings of non-belonging was developing this good girl shell that that I spent a lot of time unlearning and deconditioning and is the work that I support women in today. Yeah, I'm really interested in that. And then just back in the, the mind frame of you as a little girl, 
I know we're going to talk about perfectionism, but it, it's almost like a, an airtight case. Like if you, if they can't find fault with you, then you're automatically accepted and approved of, right? Yes, I, I definitely. That's so interesting. So you've mentioned being an immigrant a couple of times. Can you tell our listeners uh, where you're from or where your family's from and what your experience was like in the U.S. and Canada? Sure. So I was born in Buenos Aires in Argentina. And when I was two years old, my family immigrated to Toronto, Canada. And those are vastly different cultures. (laughs) And so in my home, I was Argentinian, but in the world, I was Canadian. And in school, I was Canadian. And that was confusing in a lot of ways, particularly with language. So at a very early age, because I was only two, I, I started to have language loss. You know, I started losing my Spanish. And that created a sort of anxiety when I was a child. Because when we would go back to Argentina, I was like, I couldn't communicate with my extended family anymore. Yet I could understand Spanish a hundred percent. I couldn't speak it. And now I, I realize there's a term for it. I just learned it the other day, listening to the code switch podcast. There's a, it's a type of bilingualism where you can comprehend a hundred percent, but you can't speak it. And I think a lot of first generation kids are probably nodding their heads <laughs> if they're listening to this and know what I'm talking about. And it created a bit of an anxiety and a rift around, okay, well, if I'm not quite Argentinian, because I don't speak the language and I'm I'm not quite Canadian because, you know, my name is Maho and I've just come from a different place. It, I think that also was definitely something that I have, have been having to heal throughout my life and reconcile. Did you feel other? Definitely. I think I, I do have these vivid moments as a child of, <laughs> you know, being on the playground and my girlfriend's names were, you know, Allison and Rebecca and they were blonde and blue eyed and there was just this sense of because they had that Barbie look, they they had dominance and superiority over who who could do what and even going down the slides first. And then, you know, the girls with the brown hair would go down. And I can't even imagine thinking about because I'm white passing like and, and I do consider myself white because my ancestry is 95 percent European. But I can't imagine what it would be like to be a little girl with brown skin or a black girl, just the amount of othering that happens at such a young age is devastating. How was home life? I mean, you moved around a lot. Was your interior like family life stable? Yes. I got the lottery with parents. Oh, that's nice. (laughs) I know. What a relief because it was destabilizing on the outside. But both my folks are amazing. Of course, they have their flaws, but they're both solid humans that helped. If anything, you know, my mom was so loving. She had so much compassion for us. She almost felt so much for us. So it was tough. Like she had a sort of protective bent. My brother wanted to play hockey. He wanted to be goalie. And after a while, my mom was just like, I cannot withstand seeing people score on you and like how emotionally devastating that must be for you. So he stopped playing goalie. You know, that was the level of, you know. (laughs) To protect your mom. (laughs) Yes, to protect my mom's emotional. Oh, that's so sweet. Yeah, you know, that level. (laughs) My mom's a big feeler. I had really loving parents and they always told me I could do and be anything. The only thing, 
my parents really didn't want me to be a creative and an artist or a writer. They were fearful for me. Like when I was 10 and I was like, I think I want to be a writer. Like, I think I want to be, you know, an artist. They were like, please, no. Like they would say things like, you're so intelligent. Like you could be you know, as if artists aren't, you know, <laughs> like my father said, well, if you want to be a, a writer, be a lawyer. So there was a lot of messaging which I think is normal for, and I may be generalizing for immigrant parents around just choose the safe conventional path that you know is going to get you that economic stability. That was important to them. Yeah. You know, I have heard that from a lot of first generation people and immigrants, but I've also heard it from just a lot of everyone. There still is this really pervasive fear amongst parents that a creative life is one that's unstable and insecure and not going to be financially rewarding. And I think hopefully that's something that we can start to unpack and unravel and undo in society because as we move forward into a world where creative thinking is really the only way to adapt, uh, we need people to actually seek out and master their creative chops. Definitely. That's the, the, the future of society. So you got the sort of typical dissuasion from the creative path. And then so did you feel a bit rebellious? Or is that one of the reasons why you started off in psychology and cultural studies? Why don't you talk to me about your college years? I felt like that kind of messaging had me double down on choosing a safe path. And psychology was a nice compromise in my mind, because it was still like a social science, at least in the field of psychology. There was still a lot of conversation around rigor, having empirical research and proving things. And and given my father was a scientist, there was some relief and comfort I found in that. I was like, oh, psych is going to be like this great in-between. And I think if I had really just owned my creative half in my college years, I would have gotten even deeper into more of the humanities and fine arts and cultural studies even. I would have gotten, I would have majored in something like cultural studies or anthropology, but I felt like psych allowed me to have one foot in science that felt comforting and that would frankly please my father. Sure. And there's a lot at stake at that moment in your life. And so having your parents kind of at ease also kind of greases the skids for you to have a little more latitude and freedom if they're not like really fearful for like the direction you're headed in in that moment. Exactly. As a good girl, so to speak, I was so sensitive to my parents' reactions to me. And I wanted them to feel relief. I wanted them to have less anxiety. And so I would mold myself and change myself in order to give them that relief. It took me a few years to start to really unravel that. Did that start to happen while in college? Or are you still at this point kind of finding your path and deciding how you could put this education to work in the real world? You went to McGill and studied psychology and cultural studies. And then you got a master's at Stanford in learning design and technology. And was there time in between those? Or did you do those back to back? There were many years in between those. Ah, let, tell me about those in between years. I think that's always a fascinating time. Those are the best years. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny because my father was like, careful, if you don't go straight into a PhD or an MD, you might never go back. And that was his fear. Like, you're not going to go back and get a higher education, which would have been the worst thing. And so that was sort of me beginning to destabilize a good girl archetype because I was putting my foot down and saying, actually... I'm not going to go back to school. I'm going to 
take some time outside of the system. And the first years were rough. I make it sound like I was a complete radical and was like, I'm leaving. I wasn't like that. I actually was now looking back and thinking through it with you. I actually was like, okay, I'm not going to go back to school, but I'll get a job. <laughs> so I'll get, a, I'll get a really stable nine to five job. And so I went into a, what you think of when you think of a corporate job, it was in Washington, DC. It was health policy research. We dressed formally. We went in, you know, I had fluorescent lights hovering over me. It was the whole, you know, styrofoam cup, coffee in a styrofoam cup kind of thing. <laughs> oh man, you painted such a vivid picture. I'm right there with you. <laughs> you were, you're there with me. <laughs> and, I, yeah. and I want to scream. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so that lasted like a year or two before I fell into a depression and existential crisis of like, is this it? Is this what I made I'm- it two years? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Still Barely. power to you. Yeah. Barely. I think it was like a year and eight months. And I remember when I quit, I told my boss, like, literally, these were the words that came out of my mouth. And I still can't believe I said it because I was so young. And I was just so done. I was like, I'm a yogini. (laughs) Which is the weirdest thing to say to someone. He's like this 50 year old, like, you know, research director. And here's this like young 20 year old saying to, to him, like, I cannot be in a cubicle. Like I'm a yogini. Like I think around that time I started discovering yoga. And (laughs) and it was like a a really strange thing to tell him. And and he was like, okay. And he kind of understood what I was saying. I was basically telling him like, I do not belong here. Like I'm a fish out of water. But I even remember having that difficult conversation, dreading that difficult conversation. I was going to disappoint this older man oh my God. And I had just worked so hard in gaining his approval through projects. And now here he was, and I'd have to tell him I was leaving. And I was, you know, I cried in the conversation. I was just fell apart because I was terrified of his reaction. You know, 10 years later, I would support a client in that exact same scenario. Well, you know, what's nice about your I'm a yogini argument is nobody really has a comeback for that. (laughs) What are they going to say? (laughs) Like, maybe what is a yogini? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. They're going to try and convince you otherwise. (laughs) In a way, I get like the absurdity of it. But I also think in a way it was kind of brilliant because you did give an excuse that really nobody could like present a, a valid counter argument to you. With a statement like that, I mean, they just had to be like, oh, okay, then good luck. <laughs> exactly. I had been decided and, and I would have that conversation again a few years later at the Stanford Medical School with another research director. It was like, so I like to tell people like change, you know, we know this change doesn't happen overnight. It's like when you are going through any kind of transformation, you cycle and you have relapses and you, you know, think about getting out of a relationship, you make up, you break up. It was the same thing with my work life. I was like, I'm never doing this again. I'm never putting myself in a cubicle again. I'm a yogini, right? And then (laughs) two years later, I'm at the Stanford Medical School falling into a depression, having the exact same conversation and telling that principal investigator, like, I can't do this. I think at that point I told him, I'm a writer. (laughs) Just kept making these exclamations around my identity. Two of those times you kind of found yourself in ill-fitting situations. Do you think at the core of that, it was because you weren't expressing your creativity. I mean, early in our career, we all have to kind of pay our dues and learn 
how the world works in certain ways, but we also learn as much about what we're good at and what we like to do as what we don't want to do. So it can be really valuable. But I see in the similarity in both of those experiences is potentially the fact that you weren't able to express your creativity. And that's what felt so stifling. 100%, Amy, you nailed it. That was it. There was no connection or relationship to my creativity. At that point, I had gone, I had studied psychology, I had studied cultural studies, I thought I wanted to do neuroscience research at this point, I'd gone into health policy research. I hadn't done anything, I hadn't created or made anything with my hands, I hadn't painted, drawn, but not even just fine arts, I hadn't even thought in a creative way. It was just dead inside. That sounds like prison. Yeah, it was pr- it was a cage. It was a prison of that was made over multiple years of just conditioning, going down this track, doing what others wanted for me, you know. I had two other experiences outside of work and school that were very pivotal to me. One was I went to India. That opened me up in a lot of ways and it was a huge growth spurt. I learned from so many people and also a culture that is, at least in the way that I experienced it, was so communal and so relationship-based and not about outcomes and results necessarily and efficiency. Coming back to the States and feeling that contrast was, woof, that was hard. I remember because in India, I was always around people, always in community and relationship. I was staying in in an ashram, in a, in a community center that did nonprofit work in, in the slum areas of Ahmedabad in Gujarat. And, you know, you would just walk into somebody's home and you would talk to them and then you would go for a walk and you bump into someone else and then someone would invite you for lunch. And so it was so interconnected and relational. And then to be sort of launched back into my apartment in Palo Alto outside of Stanford campus and feeling extremely isolated. It was a jarring moment for me that made me realize, oh, culture, <laughs> culture really shapes us, doesn't it? And changes how we are and who we are. And yeah, so India was big. And then going to Burning Man for the first time and taking psychedelics was big. You know, it's funny because people go to Burning Man. It's like, yeah, lose your mind and party. And they have, people have such an association about it and it has a certain reputation I didn't really know that when I went, and I went to Burning Man with a very open mind. I had the opportunity to take LSD in a very safe container. It was not like, let's do this and then like go out into the the plier, into the desert and like just lose our shit. It was very, hey, intentional. Like I had someone, a mentor who actually was an older man. Again, something of the characters of older men in my life. (laughs) Um, But in this way, he played a different archetype in this experience. That was when my mind got out of its little prison and was able to see. And now now there's so much research around it. Obviously, Michael Pollan has really done work to help bring it into the mainstream conversation. But at the time that I did it, it was sort of like still very taboo. And it still is. I mean, it's still illegal. Let's get be clear. But, you know, at the time, doing it in that safe container with intention and reverence, it really allowed me to see how much I'd been suppressing my creativity. And the degree to which I had been suppressing my creativity, that was a huge wake-up call for me where I was like, I came out of that experience pretty clear that I'm meant to 
guide other people and support it, not only reclaim my own creative confidence, but support other people in doing so. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Whenever I'm in a room with web professionals, I hear a lot of shop talk about Wix Studio. Wix Studio is beloved by both designers and developers because it gives them the quality and flexibility to do exceptional work efficiently so they can do what they do best without the grind and deliver projects on time. Designers love Wix Studio because it combines pure web design with maximum productivity. With intuitive layout tools, designers can create unique layouts with an intuitive grid that allows them to add emphasis and standout style. And they can save entire custom site templates, text themes, color palettes, and components to use them time and again. And developers love Wix Studio because it gives them the flexibility and speed they need to take a wide range of projects end-to-end with code-level control over the front-end and back-end. Devs can either use Wix-made or third-party APIs. Plus, they can work online in a VS code-based IDE or code locally and push changes via GitHub. I may not be an expert in website creation, but I do know a lot about how to design and build, and there is nothing more exciting to the creative process than a well-stocked toolkit that helps me do my best work. To learn more, go to Wix Studio or simply click on the Clever Resources link in the description. Fascinating. The relationship between India and the Burning Man LSD experience, were they chronologically fairly close together? Yes. So you did have the sort of one-two punch of those experiences. And do you feel like that was one of the reasons why you were able to sort of harness the momentum from those two really profound experiences and make serious life change. I don't mean serious. I just mean like put a lot of action and energy into a a dedicated path. That's a great observation. Yeah, it was 2012. It was a certain amount of energy, but what was sort of ironic was before I went to India and Burning Man, I'd applied to grad school to go and design. That was going to be new for me, but it was in the school of education. So it was learning design and tech. And so it felt like a hybrid, something that was extremely interdisciplinary that would allow me to express different parts of myself. And so I applied to grad school. I had all these, you know, really opening experiences, gained a lot of this momentum. And then I got the acceptance letter. 
Oh, and then it's almost like you had your foot on the gas, but you had to like save it for a second. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, well, I felt like grad school, to be honest, accelerated it even more. I don't know if it was because it was Stanford or the program I was in. I think it depends because everyone's experience of university is so different. But also I had matured as a student. It wasn't about getting straight A's for me anymore. Like I was like, I'm not going to, to get, I'm not going to get straight A's. I'm going to literally design my own curriculum, carve my own path through this degree and figure out what I want to study, what interests me, what lights me up. I'm going to bring in these threads of creative confidence and mindfulness and spirituality and Stanford's going to make room for it. And Stanford did. It was amazing. That's incredible. I think that is the best way to go through graduate school. I did the same thing. I had several years of life experience in between undergrad and graduate school. And by the time I got to graduate school, I had this ferocious hunger and I knew what I wanted. And I just like squeezed the program for everything that I needed it to be and got the most out of it and like finished up just like bedraggled and exhausted and ecstatic. (laughs) That's the best way. I remember taking like six classes one semester, which is like some might be like, wow, that's that's quite a bit. But I, I felt so interested in every class. I couldn't give up anyone. And I was like, I'm just going to get a C in some of these classes. And that was fine for me because it was no longer about a GPA. It was about learning. And I was about, yeah, consuming that knowledge. Yeah, I went in hungry and I had a class that completely accelerated me. It was called Design Fundamentals for Design Thinkers. And it was taught by John Edelman, who is a professor at Stanford at the School of Engineering, and John Barton, and Charlotte, I forget her last name. She was like creative director at the D School at the time. That class changed my consciousness forever. I'm like, this class was like as important to me as like taking LSD or learning breath work and learning meditation. It expanded me as an artist, as a, as a designer, as a thinker. It was incredible. It was creative education at its finest. How did it change your consciousness forever? I don't even have words around it, but because I, mm-hmm. I haven't really talked about this with anyone or even on in any podcast or episode. So I'm going to, this is like me trying to find language for a dream <laughs> for the first time. So <laughs> okay, bear with me. It unlocked a lot of creative energy inside of me through the processes. So we did like processes around sensuality. Like there was one process where all we did was have to touch like 50 different textures and make really well-designed note cards, like little profiles on each texture. That process, it was like my hands woke up for the first time. Like, oh my God, my hands are alive. There are these beings, you know, and just touching the world. It was really, really, really revolutionary for me at that at that point in my life. And then there was the final project in which they introduced the concept of the artist's alter ego and the professor showed the Beatles and how they had created all these alter egos in order to regenerate themselves and come out with sort of the, their next bodies of work. You know, we brought in theater, like who's your alter ego? And that really unlocked a lot for me. I ended up really pushing the edges of that. And I just want to say like, kudos to these professors in this class who totally was like, we're here for it, Maho, like however weird you want to get. But (laughs) I I ended up like making this like paper mache cocoon, which is like where this little 
fairy character lived and she would write poems on, on it. And she would like paper mache leaves on it. And I was just like very in tune with this little character that I was embodying and literally what she would create, you know, mm-hmm. with what was around her and her her magical world. And it just brought up all this play and magic. And even just me talking about it now, I can feel how lit up I feel just talking to you about it because it just, it was amazing. Such a beautiful, beautiful project. And, and it was the time I felt closest to my inner artist. Yeah, that's wonderful. I'm so excited to have you share that experience. I do think you're right. Like that's when education's at its best. And it's not just somebody sharing a body of knowledge with you. It's when the program is actually built around you unlocking all of this within yourself and giving you the space and the permission and the safety to really go for it. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And I ended up doing my master's project on tea ritual, which was like, I think about it now and I think it's a little, I'm like, wow, they really like, let me get away with that, you know? (laughs) Cause I was like, this has to do with adults learning intimacy. And I pitched them around how adults can learn intimacy through tea rituals. (laughs) And they were like, you know, okay, this is not a typical um, LTD project, but we're going to put you in touch with the social psych department, with the anthropology department, with the the Asian studies, you know, department. Like they encouraged me to look outside, be interdisciplinary. I love all of these stories and I'm seeing the puzzle pieces and how they fit together with what you're doing now. So did you sort of graduate and just like hit the ground running with all of this energy and enthusiasm that was building the whole time? Yes, though it was hard because when I graduated, I actually wrote like a whole draft novel, which is still sitting in a drawer. But that was like where I put that energy. I was like, I'm just going to write a novel and like wrote a whole thing. But actually almost fell back into the trap and started interviewing. I like to say the trap, but you know, this could have been, (laughs) this could have been right for someone else. But I started interviewing at large tech companies and kind of seeing myself as like, oh, I know I'll position myself as like a design researcher, user experience designer, curriculum designer, and was interviewing at really top companies and just getting this pit in my stomach, like this feeling mm. of like, I'm going back there. You know where this ends up, Maho. Like, don't do it to mm. yourself. And the body has so much knowledge like that, so much wisdom in the body. Exactly. My body was a big no. And so I backed up and I said, okay, like, what are my other options here? And I had taken a program that was also really transformational. I had taken a class at at Stanford called Design Your Life, which we know now is a New York Times bestselling book by Dave Evans and Bill Burnett. But that class, we did our Odyssey years in that class. And one of my Odyssey years was basically working for myself and starting my own coaching business and consulting business. Like that was definitely a path that that was there that would have been outlined. And so I revisited that and I decided I'm going to do it. I'm going to start coaching and consulting and, and I'm going to use all the tools that I've learned around everything that I've learned in the last 10 years and support, support women in whatever they want to create in the world. I mean, I have to ask a sort of obvious question, but 
so far in your life, you've mentioned a few pivotal moments with older men of mm-hmm. authority who are also potentially mentors and sages in mm-hmm. your life. Mm-hmm. At what point were you 100% sure your purpose was in supporting women? I know. It's so interesting, right? It happened for me, I would say at Burning Man, one of the ahas I got was, oh my God, feel like I've been in this cage. How come? Like, where did this come from? I'm looking at the prison for the first time and sort of thinking that I had received so much messaging throughout my life and so much messaging that related to my identities. Because you're an immigrant, this is like how it must be. Or because you're like this, this is how it. And one of those big identities that was just sort of glaring me in the face was woman, you know, gender identity, girl. Mm-hmm. And how the expectations of being the good daughter and the expectations of being beautiful and perfect and you know, not too loud and not too directional and the expectations of putting, you know, sacrificing, putting others b- before myself and not being selfish, you know, art, mm-hmm. art was a selfish path. So sort of all the sort of gender expectations that I sort of, I sort of woke up to those in those moments. And, and I would want to add that I grew up with a very strong mother, and she's definitely been a feminist her whole entire life. So I definitely grew up with sort of feminist messaging as well. And so I felt I wanted particularly to support women. That was my my path. And I think that the patriarchy hurts everybody. It doesn't just hurt women. It hurts men, and it hurts people who don't identify as, as either women or men. We need people supporting those people as well. I felt my path because of my embodied experience in this lifetime as a woman was to support other women. I know in your work as a women's leadership coach, author, and podcast host, a lot of what you break down is how the patriarchy does harm everyone. Can you tell me about that? Patriarchy, just to define it real quick, is a social and cultural system that's been around for thousands of years. As long as we've had written language, it has been around. And so it's about 5,000 years old. It's also a global phenomenon. And basically, it's when we privilege men over women and other genders. So, And we privilege men basically in very visible ways, but sometimes in very invisible ways. Given it's it's such a widespread cultural system that we're born into, but also that has been around for thousands of years, therefore we've inherited it multi-generationally down the line, it's actually very present for us in everything. It's literally on our shampoo bottles, it's in our commercials, it's in our music, it's in our interactions, it's in our language, it's everywhere. It's in the subtext. It's in the unspoken. It's in the ether. It's unavoidable. Unavoidable. Yeah. Yeah. And in some places, it's very visible, right? Like in some places, like girls cannot go to school. Where we are, if we're in the in the West and we're more privileged or affluent communities, we might think, well, aren't we, haven't we already gotten over a lot of this stuff? Well, turns out it's just been driven underground. It's just been a little bit more sneaky. And so we have the task of catching it and noticing it in ourselves. Because one of the things I argue in my book, Break the Good Girl Myth, is that patriarchy is inside of us. 
we have the responsibility. It's not our fault that it's inside of us, but we have the responsibility to unlearn it. It's the work that we're here to do so that we can come into our most authentic selves and who we truly are. And so that's what I support women to do in breaking down what I call the five good girl myths. Ooh, I'm dying to hear those. Yeah, I'd be curious to hear which ones most resonate with you. We have five, but one or two tend to be more dominant in our lives. I'll just list all of them. So the myth of rules, the myth of perfection, myth of logic, myth of harmony, and myth of sacrifice. And rules is when we follow external rules and authority instead of trusting our own needs and desires. So this is the one that, for example, in my story, I broke when I decided not to go back to school right away or when I decided to you know, quit my job and go to Burning Man or go to India to do what I wanted to do. It's like I'm no longer listening to what I should be doing, but what I wanted to. Myth of perfection, this is what it sounds like. We can go deep into this one, like a whole episode could be just dedicated to to this myth, but it's basically when we demand perfection in ourselves and other people, when, when we have unrealistically high standards and some kind of ideal in our mind, which prevents us from being vulnerable, from embracing mistakes, and actually f- from growth. Uh, so that's the myth of perfection. Logic is when you choose logic over intuition and decision-making. Harmony is seeking harmony instead of embracing the conflict and confrontation needed for change. So this is a biggie. This has a lot to do with using and reclaiming our voice. And sacrifice, I like to say, is the oldest good girl myth. Putting other people's needs above our own at the expense of our self-care and well-being. Oh, man. Yeah. So for me... All of them sort of speak to me. Rules was probably the easiest one for me to rebel against. But in rebelling against the rules, I think I also felt like I had to double down on things like perfection and logic in order to have a case for rebelling. But mostly, harmony is the weird one for me because I'm just like an empathic kind of person. And from a very early age, I picked up on how if I excelled at something that made somebody else feel bad, that it ended up hurting me just as much. So I'd almost like make myself small, Mm -hmm. particularly around boys and men, because they would, they would be a lot more expressive in their disdain or their upset if, if I beat them at their own game. (laughs) That didn't end up like fueling competition or anything for me. It was just like really unpleasant. So I steered around it rather than going straight into it. It's such a good example because this is very common where we see a trade-off between our voice and the relationships. So there was uh, these researchers at Harvard that studied middle school girls and studied them for multiple years all throughout their middle school years and then into high school. Well, actually studied them before middle school to see if there was a change. And they noticed that something happened when age 12 or 13, where they would become more quiet. When they interviewed these girls and did in-depth interviews, they found that the girls would say, if I speak or if I share how I really feel, this person's going to be mad at me. I'm going to lose this relationship. I'm going to be excluded from the group because there was such a desire for the belonging and salvaging the relationship they went inward and got really small and got really quiet and wouldn't say how they really felt about things. Damn it. If Just imagine if like all of those middle school girls 
didn't do that, if we could somehow go back in time and change that direction, how would the world be different today? I mean, I think it would be a lot more harmonious, honestly. Yeah, I'm with you. I think it would be. I think that it may be changing. I feel you. I feel you. You feel on me? That. I feel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's a wave. There's a current. There's a current. <laughs> you know, even just like looking on TikTok, I'm like, wait, these middle school girls or whatever, high school girls at least, may be different than what we were in high school. Even looking at movies from the you know, 70s, 80s, and 90s, like the stuff we would just watch was garbage around Gen- <laughs> Around totally. gender and race. I'm like looking at the movies even just from the 90s. I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> this is really bad. And I just think that w- there is a different world, even having lived through BLM in 2020 and that whole conversation as a young person is giving you a whole different education. So I hope it's changing. So I'm more worried about us adult women who had this in middle school and now it's dragging into our adulthood we're having to do the work of unlearning it. Yeah, I mean, I feel a current there too, um, a sort of awakening that's that's happening layer by layer. You know, my contemporaries and even women that are older, they're unlearning slowly and they're recognizing just subtle course corrections. It's not even a militant, angry, bra-burning kind of feminism as much as it's like, no, I'm not going to put up with that anymore. Mm -hmm. So, so much of it is in language too, because we can now leverage what's unacceptable. Absolutely. The owning of our no is huge. Yes. Yes. Or being able to say, this is an opportunity I I want to take. (laughs) And it is my prerogative to do so. And I believe that I can bring to the table something that is of value and maybe more value than this candidate who's also vying for the same thing, you know? And it's Mm -hmm. like, somehow it's more okay to speak like that now. I would agree with you. I think that owning our yes and our desire, which is what you just described, is the flip side of the no, is becoming more acceptable. And that's the learning we're all making in, in retrieving that voice that maybe we haven't exercised for a while or retraining that muscle of owning, this is not okay with me, you know, this is what I need to feel safe. This is what I need to feel good. Owning our pleasure too. Owning our pleasure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hey, making requests, (laughs) making requests (laughs) in our relationships in certain contexts. You know, it's funny because the good girl makes are very flexible in the sense that you can have various conversations around them. And I was just on a sexology podcast. We talked about all the good girl myths related to the bedroom. Every single one. (laughs) These relate to work. These relate to sexuality. These relate to our bodies and well-being. Wow. They just permeate our identities. Yeah, they're just core fundamental tendencies that are sneaky. They're subconscious. And we get to catch them when they're in action and choose a different path. Because honestly, there's nothing inherently wrong with harmony or sacrifice. These are beautiful qualities that we need in certain contexts. The issue is when we're defaulting into them without realizing again and again versus choosing them from an empowered place because we're like, okay, I choose to be harmonious in this situation, even though I can see there's this other option, I'm not going to take it because what's best in this option is to be harmonious. There's There's coming from a place of choice is so much more empowering and just falling back into it again and again without noticing. 
Yeah, without noticing or because you assume that's what's expected of you and that's the only option. So your book, Break the Good Girl Myth, it's about this, right? It's about deconstructing all of these good girl myths, helping people to understand and recognize them and then also to choose more intentionally when they do recognize it. Do you have like specific tips and tactics? Yeah. So in the book, for each good girl myth, I have different tools, techniques, tactics, depending on the myth. So for example, in the myth of perfection, which we can definitely dive into, I talk a lot about prototyping and how prototyping was huge for me. And I know there's a lot of designers most likely listening. I actually work and have coached a lot of designers. And what's so fascinating and interesting about working with women who are designers is often we really know how to prototype for our clients. We really know how to prototype for others. When it comes to applying it to our own projects, our own passions, we can get into all or nothing thinking and we can get into perfectionism and procrastination and analysis paralysis. And self-judgment. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. That's the worst. That's big. Self-judgment is huge. What I love about prototyping, one of the big mantras from the design school was don't be precious. And something I repeat again and again, don't be precious. And it helps start to unstick the grippiness that we get when we want something to be right, you know, and perfect. And we're putting all this pressure on it. It's like, well, no, it's, it's a prototype. It's small, quick, easy to make easy to break version of your idea. You can throw it out if you need to. And coming from it from a place of abundance too, not scarcity that you can literally that there's, you can keep going with these, you know, not feel like this is the one shot you have on goal. That is something I think we can all benefit from. I mean, I'm a designer myself, but I still get hung up you know, even just in writing, it's like this draft doesn't have to be perfect. If I could just push through and make it not precious, then I can go back and iterate and refine, figure out what works, what doesn't work. And that movement is so much more productive. But instead, I still get hung up on perfecting like word choice. And it just belabors the process. Exactly. And what you just mentioned about momentum, because what we're talking about, too, is like, at least in my case, like through my program Ignite, I support women in starting projects, right? Like they have these brilliant ideas they've been sitting on for weeks, months, if not years, and just been playing in the back of their mind, you know, and it's like, let's start. And we have to start somewhere. We start with prototypes because it gives us momentum. And what's really interesting about the mind and our resistance is it likes to build things up right? It likes to raise the bar, so to speak. That's how myth of perfection works. It's like we raise the bar on ourselves. So it's almost impossible to even begin. We make these unrealistic experts. Like I want to start a podcast. Oh, I need a studio and I need all this equipment and I need like top-notch equipment and I need like the perfect podcasting thumbnail. And I need the, it's like, okay, yeah, no wonder it's taken you two years, you know, or it's taken so long. Like what's the scrappiest version of an episode you could make? Again, embracing constraints. So embracing the power of constraints, which we learn in creativity and design for our own projects to help us overcome imposter syndrome and help us overcome that self-judgment. Nice. Okay. So this is the work that you're doing in your coaching program, which is called Ignite. Mm -hmm. We've already heard a bit about your book, Break the Good Girl Myth. 
And you're also a podcast host. You've been doing this for quite a while. The podcast is called Heroin. And you interview and have really candid conversations with female visionaries and leaders and creatives of all types. I'm kind of interested in you personally doing all of this work. What is it teaching you about yourself? I'm still grappling with my good girl myths, like real talk. (laughs) You know, on the outside, people are like, wow, you've created all these cool things. Like you seem like someone you just do what you want. Like you created this podcast and you wrote this book and published it and you make this program. And so you're living your life like the way you want to design it, right? To some degree that is true. But if I were to be completely honest with your listeners and with everyone who's listening right now, I still feel that I have a lot of artistry inside of me that has not been tapped into because I want to get it perfect or I want to obey whatever rules of whatever, you know, entrepreneurship, or it's just a new system. (laughs) It's just a new system, right? Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Like, in some ways, entrepreneurship really breaks the conventional mold of corporate life, but entrepreneurship has its its set of rules and and ways of doing things. And you enter a whole new culture with its norms. And so I'm almost like questioning and starting to look at everything that I've created and saying like, how much of this has to do with me wanting to achieve and gain some kind of external approval versus how much of this is like a true expression of my inner artist and who I really am. I think that's the inquiry that we need to continue doing with ourselves our whole lives though. Don't you? Yeah. I think the edge keeps getting pushed back because if you would have talked to me before I started the heroin podcast, I would have told you, Amy, this is the thing. This is where my highest expression can go right now. It's the heroin podcast. You're right. I think that we're evolving and that the edge gets pushed back. It, it, it changes. And sometimes the edge is not even doing more. You know, it's doing less. Sometimes it's no, like... Ex- exactly. Productivity is a sort of construct of capitalism that's got us all just like scrambling the whole time and not living our lives to their fullest. Totally. You know, I'm taking a creative sabbatical this fall. So I'm going to be writing. I'm going to be writing fiction and poetry, which is like my heart's desire. And I'm really excited about it. And so I'm taking a little break from program and from client work. And, and that just feels right for me. Congratulations. That's a really brave step. Thank you. Yeah, it feels good. And then it feels all the things that I have some nerves around it, but mostly I feel like it feels like the, the step for me at this point in my life and my trajectory. I would have nerves around it too. Uh, so I totally understand what's the opposite of the nerves. Like what's the excitement around it? Can you just maybe make that more vivid for us? Sure. So we can feel your feelings. (laughs) (laughs) I love your questions. (laughs) I'm really excited about going inward and exploring this 
incredible universe that I have inside myself, full of imagination and possibility and connections that just sparkle. I'm really excited about exploring that inner world and then bringing it onto the page, being delighted by that process in all its ups and downs and beauty. I sort of picked up earlier that maybe the good girl myths that you're still grappling with are along the lines of rules and perfection. I mean, it would make sense to me that the first step is sort of like seeing these clear enough to actually like label them, name them, understand how they permeate our lives. But then we'll be unraveling them for a long time. It's not like there's a switch we can just flip and and turn it off, even though we see it. The grappling with it it gets more fluid and it gets deeper and you spiral around. And every time you come back to the same place, you're actually at a different place because you've done the work and you're now working on a deeper, more profound level. I'm really excited for this sabbatical for you. You know, I've heard other people talk about how important and productive it is. I think it's something that as society we should embrace. I think it can be such a fruitful time, but it's it's still such a scary decision to make. And so I just really commend you for doing it. And I hope that you get all of those juicy, sparkly moments. And you work through some frustration with yourself to a place where you get to a, a new creative peak that gives you a sort of deep confidence. I love it. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. I, I feel like you just gave me a blessing on a podcast. <laughs> like a blessing. I don't know who I am to do that, but I just <laughs> I feel like you just blessed my creative sabbatical. I did. <laughs> Before I let you go, I, I wanna know, you know, after the sabbatical or including the sabbatical, what what is the biggest dream you have for yourself? I think the biggest dream is being able to enter and navigate that mysterious unknown portal that is creativity without doubt. Hot damn. That is a big dream. <laughs> Wish me luck. Cheers to that, sister. Amen. <laughs> well, this has been just really delightful and informative and nutrient dense and wonderful and more power to you. Thank you so much, Maho. Thank you, Amy. I loved this conversation. It's definitely up there in the interviews that I've had. So kudos to you for asking such deep questions and listening, like really, truly listening. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. To see images of Maho and her work, read the show notes. Click the link in the details of this episode on your podcast app or go to cleverpodcast.com where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Subscribe to Clever on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would please do us a favor and rate and review, it really does help us reach more people with these amazing stories. We also love chatting with you on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And you can find us at Clever Podcast and you can find me at Amy Devers. Clever is produced by 2VDE Media with editing by Rich Straffolino, production assistance from Ilana Nevins and Anushka Stefan, and music by L1011. Clever is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to discover more great shows. They curate the best of them so you don't have to. Clever is proudly distributed by Design Milk.